Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program from RNZ Sport. I'm Denise Garland. In the program this week, Silver Ferns coach Janine Southby tells us how they can take the Constellation Cup. The Kiwis chase an historic league win in Perth, while the All-Whites defy the odds in the United States. New Zealand's Sarai Berriman shakes up FIFA. V8 supercars driver Shane Van Gisbergen talks us through a controversial Bathurst, while Hayden Patton and John Kennard chalk up a century of rallies. We celebrate yet another New Zealand golfing champion and more. Wednesday night's upset win in Tasmania has given the Silver Ferns a much-needed confidence boost, heading into the New Zealand leg of the Constellation Cup netball series in Australia. After being thrashed by 12 goals in the first game, the Ferns bounced back against the Diamonds with a two-goal victory in Launceston. The New Zealanders were able to shut down Australia's lethal attacking combination of mid-quarter Maddie Robinson and sharpshooter Caitlin Bassett for the first time while the Ferns shooters Bailey Mez and Tapia Selby-Rickett combined well to put the match in the visitors' favour. It was the first time the Silver Ferns' new coach, Janine Southby, had beaten Australia, but she told media she's not satisfied with just doing it once. I think there's an element of still we weren't happy with aspects of our game the other night. There's still a lot of um, finishing off that we're not doing as well as we know we can, so there's certainly the pressure on us to do that. And we know that defensively we just have to keep the pressure on them. We saw what happened when we got pressure on them. They made mistakes and we got a lot of turnover balls, so there's certainly a lot of work to do still in that area. Julian, do you think the Australians will make their own adjustments, to, especially to what, to what they saw from Anna? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we, we talked about what we think that they'll have a look at. Um, you know, I know they'll be disappointed. They'll be like we were four or five days ago, so we absolutely expect they'll bring something different tomorrow. And you've made a little bit of a slow start in those first, especially the first one and even in the second one. Is yeah. that something you work on? Yeah, yeah, we have. I mean, we're conscious of it and no one goes out there to, to make the errors and I think there's been a couple of real basic ones to start with and, and guilty of not keeping that intensity up. I think the really positive thing that came out of Wednesday night is we didn't let it get away on us, whereas we did in the first test. With the, the growth that you've seen with the goal attacks over the last little while and having some of the A squad in here, are you starting to see that development, that growth, the next tier of players getting closer to being ready to, to compete at this level? Yeah, look, there's still it's a big step up, and you ask any of the girls who have been out there even asked to hire, it's in the, it's next level, and so the more we can expose those development players into into this environment and have them around, the better understanding they have. So. You know, it's obviously a big focus for Netball New Zealand next year is obviously the, under, the World Youth Cup, so that's another opportunity for some of those players. And, you know, the New Zealand A programme this year has been really beneficial for us to have those players in and out because we've actually used a few of them since then. You talked a little bit about some of the other things that you weren't quite so happy with. Um, what adjustments do you need to make 
for tomorrow night? I think it, you know a lot of it is actually just making sure we're sighted where to put the ball. We're sometimes guilty of putting the ball in, in under a lot of pressure, uh, and I think still we need to go harder into the ball at times. So you know, there's certainly some areas there. Uh, look, I think. We've certainly stepped up in the shooting this year and I know that um, all of them are working really hard to, to make sure that they absolutely take their opponents to task first and foremost and then making sure we keep the connections on a team and defence. Do you expect the Australians to make line-up changes again? Yeah, look, I'm sure they'll be looking really close at all of that and, and I guess it's still a wait and see, but we you know we know the potential line-ups they can put out there and, and any of them bring strengths and it's obviously about trying to nullify those strengths. Do you mean one all? If series very much alive, how important is it to have, I guess, retain that killer instinct, not settle for winning a test? Yeah, look, and that's that's absolutely what we have to do. Um, and you know, I've got belief that the girls know what they have to do to get out there, and it's just about monitoring that and, and keeping them on their toes, and that they are keeping pushing each other. And you know, they talked about accountability within the group and holding each other to account if something's not working on on court to actually challenge each other to do that. And I think that's certainly a, a huge step up from the first to the second test. Janine Southby. The first of the two matches in New Zealand will be played in Auckland on Saturday night. New Zealand Rugby League begins a new chapter in Perth on Saturday night, with coach David Kidwell at the helm for the first time. Kidwell only took up the head coaching role last month, after Stephen Kearney stepped down from the role to become the New Zealand Warriors coach. The Kiwis, who are ranked number one in the world, lost 16-0 to the Kangaroos in Newcastle in their last test in May, when they were missing a number of leading players. One of those missing was 5'8 Thomas Luluai, who makes his return in Perth, and told me the whole team is brimming with confidence. Obviously it feels really good to get back in. Um, it's always a privilege when you get picked in these sort of teams, and it's a very strong team, so it makes it more important to, uh, or more special to get picked. What are your thoughts on David Kidwell's first team that he's picked? Um, obviously, a lot of returns as well. Yeah, look, I think he's picked a, picked a strong squad. I think he's picked on form and, and players that um, you know they've been playing well all season and got a decent um, amount of players to pick from and, and all playing well. So he's um, very lucky in that sense. He's picked two debutants in Solomon Akata and Jordan Rapana, who both had really strong NRL seasons personally. How are they feeling after being picked for the first time? Obviously, I guess they're pretty excited. To be fair, I think you know, they both had tremendous years. So I'm guessing you know, they, they knew they most probably would have been there or thereabouts. And Kitty's picked on form, and both of them have had fantastic years. So I dare say they'll be pretty excited. You are missing, uh, however, probably the most experienced man in the 24 with Simon Mannering still in Auckland, um, just extra week to recover from that, that minor surgery he had. How much of a loss is his skill and strength up front? Oh, yeah, massive. You're talking about one of the best Kiwis to ever play, really, so in my opinion anyway. So it's obviously a big loss, but um, I think the lucky thing for us is that um, that's most probably a, a position where we've got a lot of depth in. You know, we'll never be able to replace what Simon does, but um, you know, we can minimise that with the other players we've got. Because to be fair, there's Tory Harris and Kevin Proctor, who are both fantastic players and have played a lot in the Kiwi jersey too. So they'll definitely do the job for the team. Well, Tohu uh, was talking about how when um, the Kiwis play the Kangaroos, it is often like a, a quite a grinding game up front between the two sides. Is that what you're expecting again come Saturday? Yeah, we are. Most of test matches are like that these days, and you only got a week together, so you know you can't come up with extravagant game plans or anything like that. It's more about um, doing the simple things right, and, and you know, grindy test matches, one up front with the forwards, and and uh, luckily for us, we've got a decent uh, forward pack, so um, we're looking forward to it. Uh, unfortunately, you guys are coming off a loss 
from the the May test. Is there anything in particular that you guys have worked on when you guys have come together in Perth this week? To be honest, we've only had a couple of little runouts, and we're lucky that a lot of the boys have played together for a long time. You know, the team has been pretty much the same, and we're just going to keep doing what we're. Well, we have been doing in other camps. All the cores are still the same and everything like that. So, look, we know our strengths as our forwards. And I know that Kitty's pretty keen on us to, to play to our strengths and, and play through the middle with our forwards. You know, all with great footwork and all of the ability to pass. So, that's one of our strengths and that's what we're going to play to. And David Kidwell, obviously, his first run out this, this weekend as coach. How has, um, what has he brought to the team that might be a little bit different to how Stephen Kearney has coached the side? Oh, I'm not too sure. I don't think it'd be too much too different tactically. Kitty's um, obviously a very passionate man. I was lucky enough to play alongside Kitty in the Kiwi jersey. And yeah, he was more or less our leader in that respect. And he makes sure he wants us to make sure we're very aggressive. It's most probably one thing that he's picked out for us to be. Very aggressive and um, and play with a lot of passion. So, you know, we're looking to do that for him. And, and you obviously just talked about passion there. Is there also a lot of confidence in the side despite coming off a loss last time? Yeah, to be honest, I haven't even brought up the uh, Anzac test. We're just looking forward and you know, the boys are confident. Look, you know, we've got some good players and, you know, we've built something over the last few years here. And, you know, we're coming up against a really good Australian team. But um, one of the main things for us is just focusing on ourselves and not looking at anyone else and, you know, keeping our head down and working hard. Thomas Luluai. The All-Whites have completed their preparations ahead of their opening World Cup qualifying matches with two very encouraging performances in the United States. The New Zealanders lost to Mexico 2-1 and drew one all with the USA this week. They could have won both of those games despite being ranked about 60 places below the sides. Assistant coach Darren Baisley told Barry Guy it's tough when they don't get together often. To be fair to the boys, they've worked really hard for 10 days now and, and put a lot of graft in early on in the tour. Um, and it just shows you what can happen when you when you work hard and you and you really work on the training ground on a style of play um, and you believe in it. And the players have done that. They've put the work in and, and they do believe in it and they've backed each other up and, and a lot of trust in the team and culture's great. Um, and they've put in two very solid performances that you know, sort of now people can go away and remember these and, and believe that next time they come together, you know, when it starts to get important with the big games, that we can do that in these big games and we can play against some of these bigger bigger countries and, and better teams and put on performance and, and get results. Is that key, you know, playing these teams uh, that are ranked, you know, in the teens sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, you want to play as, as top of opposition as you can. Um, so this was a great tour, you know, Mexico and U.S., they're both ranked in the top 20 in the world. So very good teams, you know, some great players on show for the past week. So, yeah, great experience for our players to um, put themselves against them and to, uh, and to come out having competed in both games, you know, and done very well and, you know, come out on top in certain parts of each game. It's great for them, great for their, for their belief and great for the confidence that they've got in each other and the team and the philosophy moving forward. You talked about the philosophy. I heard Ryan Nelson yesterday say that it appears... The All-Whites have gone to another level. What is trying to be achieved there? Is is that the style of play? Yeah, you know, the gap is really strong on um, on how he wants this team to play and the players have bought into it and, and they have worked really hard. And, 
you know, the gaffer's got a lot of meticulous planning and preparation for each training session, you know, with videos of, of how he wants this team to play and how he wants individuals and, and you know, the units to work in, in, in almost every moment of the game. And again, to be fair to the boys, they've took it all on board. It's been a been a long week, a long two weeks, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of meetings and a lot of training. And um, what's been great is that they've gone out onto the pitch in tough games against good opposition and done what the gaffer's asked and done, you know, what we're looking for moving forward. All White's assistant coach Darren Baisley talking to sports reporter Barry Guy. The New Zealand-born footballer Sarai Berriman believes she can make major changes to the women's game as FIFA's first-ever chief women's football officer. Berriman, a former Samoa international and deputy secretary-general of the Oceania Football Confederation, was appointed in the role this week, and she'll lead the newly created women's football division as part of FIFA's management board. Speaking from Zurich, Berriman told Barry Guy the future is bright for the women's game. Women's football within FIFA represents the biggest growth opportunity. Uh, At the moment, it really is an untapped resource in terms of commercialization of women's football I think even in terms of participation of players a part of the role which is quite dear to my heart is the use of football as a tool to uh, assist with women's empowerment and gender equality there are many countries in the world where women are not in good positions uh, because of their gender and I've seen through my work that football as a sport really does have a unique power to overcome some of these barriers. So that, for me, is one part that I hold quite close and uh, I'm I'm very excited to start work in that area. So your new position, do you have the power to achieve what you want? You can make change? Yes, absolutely. The role is quite a a powerful role uh, within the world of football and there isn't a decision that I I will make or, or any strategy that I will design without obviously having the input of my team. Um, There's some very, very good people working within women's football at the moment, all around the world, uh, not just within FIFA. And my aim really is to take as much from these people and get their support and also have their input. But yeah, I think uh, in this position, the thing that uh, really excites me is that it really is a position that can influence change um, and can lead change. And uh, for me, this is one of the greatest aspects of the role. I understand as you were coming through as an administrator, you may have faced some prejudices or even sexism in some way. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it hasn't been a smooth ride all the way. Being a female in a a male-dominated sport is not an easy thing. And... I think it's a positive change that is happening. Um, it's part of the reform process which I was involved in. One of the key things that has been identified through this reform was that there needs to be a greater role of women within football. Within the administration, we need more representation of women um, at all levels, to the top level, but even in the member countries, in the committees and the decision-making bodies. And I think this is where these issues that I have faced coming through football will start to see changes. When there are women who are in the decision-making bodies and who are there to represent the female gender, the pathway will become a lot easier. And for me, that really is one of my biggest objectives. Sarai Berriman speaking with Barry Guy, and she'll assume the role next month. 
A protest hearing will be heard next week on a ruling made during the V8 Supercars Bathurst 1000, which meant race leader Jamie Wincup was relegated from 1st to 11th place, just 11 laps from the finish. Win Cup's Red Bull Racing team has appealed the controversial 15-second penalty handed down by race officials for the driver's role in a crash involving Garth Tander and New Zealand's Scott McLaughlin. The penalty meant Will Davison was handed the win, crossing the line just one-tenth of a second ahead of Auckland driver Shane Van Gisbergen in what was the closest finish in the event's competitive history. The second placing for Van Gisbergen extends his championship lead over Win Cup to 139 points. He says he's keeping clear of his Red Bull racing teammates' appeal, and right now he's more than happy with his second place finish. You know, I've tried for many years to get up on that on the Bathurst podium, and uh, you know done it in the 12 hour a couple of times, but never in the main race, the 1000. So pretty awesome to get that, and uh, pretty exciting day. And it was the closest ever competitive finish at Bathurst as well you couldn't quite get past Davison in those final few laps though Uh, what was your strategy knowing that the finish line was so close and you knowing you have to get past him yeah obviously um, I knew how many laps were left and after the last act car I think we only had four laps so yeah I did everything I could to try and get by but we just didn't have the the car speed but yeah it was uh, he was close I think he ran out of fuel as he crossed the line so yeah, it was, there was that much in it, but, you know, it is what it is. We we did it the hard way. We had to stack behind our teammate to get more fuel, and, and we ended up dropping a long way back one of the last cars on the on the lead lap. So, yeah, it was a big fight for us to, to get all the way back up there. Yeah, hard fought, and to come so close, is it a wee bit disappointing for, for you and your team, knowing that you were almost there? Not really. You know, for me, it was a, it was a, it was a good day after, after what happened, but... Yeah, of course you want to win the race, but yeah, there was a lot, lot of other drama that went on that sort of, you know, could have or would have, should have, you know. So yeah, second after the day that it was is, is a pretty good result. Well, as, as you sort of mentioned there, it was a very event-filled race, as as they often are at Mount Panorama, um, with no shortage of controversy. Of course, that incident involving Tanda McLaughlin and, and Wing Cup sort of took some of the headlines away as well. Jamie yeah. has launched an appeal after that 15-second penalty he was given. What are your thoughts about, about the penalty and, and obviously um, how that all unfolded? I don't know. I've obviously seen the footage, but... Yeah, I'm not really in a position to, to comment. You know, obviously Jamie was trying to readdress and Scotty came flying across the grass and, and that's what it was. But, yeah, none of them really did anything wrong. It was just good hard racing and, and unfortunately there was a bit of contact. But Jamie was just trying to write it and it's for people higher than need to decide and deliver the outcome. But, you know, it's a shame it ended that way because it was going to be a pretty exciting sprint to the end, that's for sure. You um, are obviously in Red Bull with Jamie Wincup. Do you think that he has a good shot at the protest hearing next week? Oh, no idea. You know, obviously I want to see the team get a, get a great result in a victory and, you know, that would mean we had two cars on the podium. You know, he did cross the line first, but, yep, it's not for me to decide. As it stands, you did get second place and, and that now extends your championship lead. How good does yep. it feel to have a wee bit more of a buffer heading into these final three races? Yeah, I'm, I'm not thinking about the championship yet. I'm just trying to win every race that I can. We've got, got Gold Coast coming up, which is the next and last endurance race, so it'd be cool to get a good result in our um, Perth Endurance Cup part of the season. 
and then yeah, focus on the last two races. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to racing at home at, at Pukekohe. I can I can say where I grew up at my parents' place just down the road, and yeah, love love racing there. So yeah, that's that's coming up soon, and and we'll see what happens in the points then. But yeah, full attack from me. Shane Van Gisbergen. The rally combination of Hayden Patton and John Kennard will chalk up a century of competitions together at this weekend's Rally of Spain. The New Zealand pair have forged a strong partnership that started in 2006, when Patton was just 18 and competing in his first New Zealand National Rally Championship season. Eleven years on, and they have enjoyed plenty of success, including winning the Production World Rally Championship title in 2011 and their first WRC rally win in Argentina this year. At 57, Kennard is the oldest co-driver on the WRC circuit and told sports editor Stephen Hewson he never saw the partnership with Patton lasting this long. First time I got in the car with him, he was young, he was 18, but... He was mature, way beyond his years, even at that stage. You know, the first time you sort of sat there with him and had a conversation, you had to sort of remind yourself that you weren't talking to someone that was nearer to your own age. You're actually talking to a teenager. So on, on odd occasions, he'd say something a bit silly, and you'd you'd start to think, "Oh, that's oh no, it's not that strange because he's a teenager." <laughs> so that side of it, and, and I mean, he always had the potential. Absolutely, always was going to be something special. That relationship, I mean, it's obviously got to be pretty special between a, a driver and a, and a co-driver. That I suppose the age difference, how rare is that in, in rallying? And is it a, a talking point, or was it a talking point when you initially started out? Yeah, I think it's always been one of those sort of oddities that I don't think we know how it works, and certainly nobody from the outside, all they see is that it does work. And I don't know, it's just... One of those things, as I say, Hayden was right from the beginning, was absolutely mature for a teenager. That probably helped a little bit. It's just got to the stage, I guess, of only the marriage or something where you understand one another and you each have little things that you do that the other one doesn't like that you put up with them and you just sort of get on with things. So the trust side of things has always been there, I think, right from the beginning. Because what you're the oldest co-driver on the, the WRC circuit. How long do you see yourself going for? <laughs> who knows it's one of those how long with a string sort of questions I mean, I'm happy as long as I'm physically able but I've always said to Hayden there's going to come a point where you'll need to change co-driver for some reason and in the beginning I probably as much as anything thought it would be one of those sort of funding issues where he got to a point where he needed to find a million dollars a year and Somebody put their hand up and had deep pockets and said, I'll put some funding into it, but I have to sit in the car with you and we're going to get to some sort of scenario like that eventually. But we never, ever did. Hayden was incredibly good at at finding ways to to find budgets and we sort of kept coming up with ideas for that. So that side of things never happened. And the relationship was working in the car, so as long as it does, and you know, it's probably getting closer and closer all the time to a point where we have to say, Okay, his commitment to the nth degree is the championship, and maybe there's an advantage in making a change. But while there's no advantage in it, then we won't do it. What is it that you enjoy the most about racing with him? I think the fact that we're both incredibly competitive people. So every time we go out onto a stage, if you're not winning the stage, then there's something wrong, and we're pulling it apart and analysing it and finding ways to go back and go faster the next time. I 
he said to me a while back on one of the rallies where we didn't expect to be particularly competitive, but he just wanted to sort of drive it and not look at the times, not know anything about what was going on, and he thought he performed best that, that way. But he said to me, if we're going to do that, then you're not allowed to talk to me at the end of stages because he said, I can, from your tone of voice, whether we've had a good stage time or a bad stage time, because you're just as competitive as I am. Now, are you guys doing anything to celebrate the, the milestone? Uh, uh, what, what is the, yeah, the plan? we're going to go rallying. <laughs> well, it's a good way to... That's the most obvious way, isn't it? <laughs> I guess somebody might give us a cake, but that's probably about as close as it'll go. No, we'll go out and do Rally Spain just exactly as if it is as any other rally, as if it was the 10th or the 100th. doesn't make any difference, really. John Kennard talking to Stephen Hewson. After four years in the role, Triathlon New Zealand's high-performance director Graham Moore is stepping down, conceding performances by New Zealand's top athletes are not what they should be. Moore says he's taken the high-performance programme as far as he can, but recognises performance and culture are not yet where they need to be. However, he told sports editor Stephen Hewson that he believes success is not far away. The process of that takes longer than four years. So uh, for me, the timing is that the framework is there and, and performances will come. I, I would certainly have liked them to have come quicker. The reality check is that we're, we're chasing a goal that, that continues to move. And, uh, and hopefully whoever succeeds me now can sort of bring that next refinement that uses the framework and, and achieves those performances as they look towards Tokyo. So do you put down, I suppose, the performance level simply to the implementation of a new system taking time to, to kick in? Or, or um, what else is there to it? Yeah, I think there's, there's every stage of the ingredient. There's the raw material that has to go out and race. We're delighted in, in our talent program, for example, that there were three uh, medalists at national schools cross-country this year who call themselves triathletes. So the, the calibre of raw material that, that you get to work with, the athletes themselves, um, has to be exceptionally high. We look at you know, the, the people that win in Rio, the Jorgensons, the Brownies, they run faster than pretty much any New Zealander alive. And there's only the, the top Olympians in their individual disciplines, the Robertsons and, and so forth, that actually run faster than the, the world's best triathletes. So the actual caliber of raw material has got to be very, very high. And it's been, it's been a good while prior to the National Talent Program now, perhaps since that investment was made. So you've got to, you've got to have those athletes coming through. And then, yes, your system has to bet into place. So the fact that we had Hamish Carter and Bevan Doherty was, what, an anomaly? No, oh, they're, they're outstanding, exceptional athletes, no question. That, um, that's right, but, I mean, they sort of got there uh, simply on their determination as opposed to having a system to support them? Or So, so why can't we repeat what we saw with them? Yeah, and they, they had very good coaches as well. Um, and you're talking about a different sport now, though. You know, they were outstanding athletes and, and would be in this generation because they had that determination and attitude. But they would also have to go significantly quicker than they did in their day. And I'm sure nowadays they would be capable of that, that, that generational thing. But you have to bring those people into the sport to start with. And for a number of years off the back of their success, there wasn't a strategic investment in talent and that was one of the, the big things called out in 2012. Outgoing Triathlon New Zealand High Performance Director Graham Moore. A study by University of Glasgow researchers suggests multiple concussions suffered by rugby players do not result in major brain problems later in life. 
Findings from the study of 52 former Scotland rugby stars appear to contradict earlier research linking serious brain conditions to repeated concussions during rugby players' careers. Professor of Clinical Neuropsychology at the University of Glasgow, Tom McMillan, says there were some differences between rugby players and non-rugby players. On a couple of the tests, the rugby players didn't perform quite as well, but their average scores were in the normal range, if you like, so it was was detectable but not really clinically uh, concerning. But New Zealand rugby is treating the findings with caution. Their medical director, Dr Ian Murphy, told Kim Hill there are a few factors that need to be considered. These studies are challenging to do for a number of reasons. One, most of them are are retrospective. So if we take this current study, there are a range of subjects involved in it, age from 26, I think, through to 79. Average age 54, yeah. Yes. You know, if we assume that these guys have played rugby for Scotland, say, 30 years earlier, say 25, 26, we're asking the average participant in the study to recall what concussions they had 30 years ago. Um, We're also asking them to make a comment on whether they thought they were concussed or not when 30 years ago we probably had very little understanding of what a concussion was. It's a relatively small study in terms of numbers, so you struggle to get the power that you're after. The power being the, the ability to make meaningful conclusions that aren't simply because of chance. I'm not so, being facetious here, Dr Murphy, but are you suggesting that they may have sustained brain damage to the extent that they can't remember whether they were concussed or not? No, no, I don't, I don't think for one second we're suggesting that. The data in this study actually suggests there is really no evidence of cognitive uh, impairments. I'll quote, uh, there were no significant associations between the number of concussions and performance on cognitive tests. So in fact, you might be tempted to say, well, this is an extremely positive study for rugby in the sense that there's really not been a great deal of association identified. But in the context of the study and its limitations, that would be inappropriate to do at this point. It does call for big prospective studies, and that is, again, consistent with previous work in this area and uh, is an area that New Zealand Rugby is attempting to play its part in at present. Uh, but these are challenging studies to do. They take a long time. They cost a lot of money and require a lot of resource. The leader of the study, Professor McMillan, conceded that the rules of rugby are different now. It's more high impact and the players are bigger. Yes. Yes, the players are bigger and... On first principles, you'd think that that would lead to bigger collisions and and bigger issues. What rugby's done to counteract that has moved with the rules considerably, as Professor McMillan says. uh, You now, if there's any question around an injury at uh, the professional level, a player's removed and assessed in real time, uh, which is a a dramatic improvement over the last five years. We don't uh, leave people on the field just in case because we don't want to remove them. We take them off and we assess them. And then similarly in the community game, the mantra is absolutely, if in doubt, sit them out. We remove people uh, with any question of a head injury and we actually indeed have a a mandatory stand down for a few weeks while we uh, allow them to recover. So in short, this study should not lead anyone to think that concussion is not a serious problem. I, I would agree with that 100%. New Zealand Rugby's Dr Ian Murphy speaking with Kim Hill. Aucklander Phyllis Metti has won the World Long Drive Championships in Oklahoma, her second time winning the title. And as Matt Chatterton reports, the drive that won her the title isn't even her longest tee shot. Introducing the number two seed, she is the 2006 Lady World Champion of Auckland, New Zealand. Say hello to Phyllis Metti. 
Phyllis Mete's final shot at this year's Long Drive World Champs also happened to be her best at over 280 metres into a strong headwind. It was a case of redemption for the 29-year-old after she lost the 2008 final in exactly the same circumstances. It was nice to be on the other, on the receiving end of the um, of the stick, if you like to say. You know, no, nobody likes to be beaten on the last on the last shot. Um, it was my best ball all day, um, and thankfully, it was the best ball for the ladies' division for that day too. So, timing is everything sometimes. <laughs> Yesterday's win adds to the title she claimed in 2006. It's no surprise when she can swing her driver at close to 200 kilometres an hour, almost 20 k's faster than most PGA Tour players. And while 280 metres may seem like a long way, Metty's best drive came on a golf course where she hit it over 390 metres. Metty credits her father for getting her into the game as a child and dedicated the win to him after he died earlier this year. Just put things into perspective of what was really important for me, and that's you know family. So it was a very um, bittersweet victory in that respect to um, you know know that my dad's kind of around me, but not physically there. Metty's picked up fifteen thousand dollars for her efforts, but isn't sure if she'll make a career out of it just yet. In the meantime, she's content on riding the highs of being the world's biggest hitter before it's back to reality on Monday when she returns to work. You guessed it at a golf club. For Extra Time, this is Matt Chatterton. And that's Extra Time for this week. Follow us on Twitter at RNZ Sport. I'm Denise Garland. Bye for now. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.